Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Katherine Kearns from the University of Chicago Department of Classics. Dr. Kearns is an expert on the archaeology of the ancient Mediterranean, particularly Iron Age Cyprus. We discuss the Bronze Age collapse and its repercussions, the way things slowly rebuilt, the countrysides of the ancient world, her fieldwork in western Cyprus, and more. All themed around her recent book, The Rural Landscapes of Archaic Cyprus. Without further ado, my name is Sebastian Weatherby, and this is The Tell. Thanks for taking the time, Katie. I appreciate oh, it. Thanks for having me. This is great. When reading your book, you open with um, an introduction to a specific artifact called the Adalian Tablet. What's so cool about this tablet for studying ancient Cyprus? Yeah, so this is a really cool inscription from the probably the mid-5th century BCE. And it was found in the you know colonial heyday of excavations on the island, so we don't have a great find spot for it. But it comes uh, from yeah. the Acropolis of Adalian, which was this you know the town center of a polity of mm-hmm. a kingdom, and it's the longest syllabic inscription that we have. So in this period in the Iron Age on Cyprus, we have evidence of multiple languages: so Semitic mm-hmm. through Phoenicians, Greek, and then a local indigenous language. Mm-hmm. And we also have multiple scripts. So it's written in a local script, but it's Greek. So we're able to translate it because we actually haven't translated the local language yet. It's really, it's still undeciphered. Yeah. Wow. The inscription is not only cool because it's on a bronze plaque with a handle. So it was meant to be held up. So it's Hmm. got this sort of public display factor to it. But it's also long, so it's engraved on both sides. And it records this transaction between the king and the city of Adalian and this guy named Onesilos, who Mm -hmm. we learn was a doctor who provided relief when the city was being attacked by the city kingdom of Kition. And so what's cool about the inscription is that it starts off, you know, like the doctor gave relief for the wounded under siege and we're going to give him a reward. And yeah. normally we would give him, I forget what the amount is actually, but like some amount in precious metals in gold from the treasury of the city. But it's like instead, mm-hmm. we're going to give him agricultural land outside the city so somewhere in the Italian territory we're going to give this guy plots of land and his family in perpetuity basically so it it kind of describes the plots do they have gardens or orchards or vineyards what are they near are they near the sanctuary so it gives you a kind of sense of the landscape And we can learn about things like, you know, the king in the city cared about cadastral information. So knowing what plots were and where they were and who owned them. So mm-hmm. like property, land ownership. Yeah, yeah. And it was also cool because it, it sort of described these fields as having a history. So like it used to be owned by somebody and now we're giving it to you. So there's mm-hmm. a kind of sense of state understanding of land ownership and that seemed important to the state because in this very public performative you know like wow you did such a great job for the city we're going to give back to you that was the choice that was the choice was this rich agricultural land why uh why cyprus you know compared with greece proper or Mm -hmm, crete or or, you know the phoenicians the Mm -hmm. canaanites there's like a whole list of things that classics nerds and ancient history nerds (laughs) tend to know about I think most probably have not read a book on Cyprus. That's right. Um, what what drew you to working in Cyprus in particular? 
It's interesting. So the short answer is just that my advisor invited me to his field project on Cyprus one summer. Yeah. I had never been. I also had similarly not known much about it. And I just started reading more and it became a kind of nagging question for me. Like, wow, the Iron Age, actually, there, there's space here for me to do the kind of project that I want. But you're right that Cyprus tends to get elided because it is not classical enough in that tradition so yes they spoke greek but they didn't have the democratic polis or like the more familiar kind of greek polis Mm -hmm. but also from a near eastern perspective cyprus is kind of far yeah a little on the edge the the near eastern world and so discipline wise and training wise i think it's a matter of becoming part of projects of people who work on the island yeah yeah particularly in the american university system Mm -hmm. yeah And what drew you to the early Iron Age, this kind of early period after the Bronze Age collapse in particular, when you could have studied a whole variety of time periods? Yeah, I think I was drawn in a couple of ways. So one Mm -hmm. is that the history of archaeology on Cyprus is very oriented towards prehistory. So many Mm -hmm. people come and they study the Neolithic, you know, the first arrival of people to the island in the, you know, pre-pottery Neolithic. Or they're studying the emergence of urbanism and state complexity on the island in the Bronze Age. And the study of the historical period, so the Mm -hmm. Iron Age and later, tends to be more subdivided into things like art history, religious studies. You know, there there wasn't as much, let's say, landscape archaeology, which I was being trained in as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. And so I initially was just drawn to, like, there's a lot of data from the place that I was working, so survey data that I could use to ask questions about landscape change, which I was interested in, environmental history, settlement patterns. So there had been surveys done, and the data was, like, there. And it was kind of understudied, and I thought, okay, this is, like, a, a starting point. And then I was also drawn to questions about post-collapse. So the late Bronze Age collapse, circa 1200 BC, in the way that prehistorians are trained, their questions kind of end there. Like, okay, it collapsed. There's abandonment, there's disruption, Yeah, that's like the bookend of the period that I'm an expert in. Maybe they'll go another chapter and they'll talk about, like, (laughs) what it was like in a disrupted series of landscapes. Yeah. But I was kind of interested in those follow-up questions, like, mm-hmm. well, what, how do we see the re-emergence of something like state complexity or urbanism or a political economy that starts leaving more visible traces? Well, what was the place of Cyprus leading up to the collapse in the world of the Eastern Mediterranean? Yeah, and the, one of the ways that we've thought about it is particularly through the commodity exchange of copper. So copper yeah, is a yeah. resource that is found on Cyprus, and we know that they're mining and smelting it, maybe turning it into bronze or maybe shipping it as copper. We also know that the kings of Cyprus, mm-hmm. or the king, um, and it was called Alashia at the time, mm-hmm. shows up in textual sources from the period. Again, at this sort of level of elite, royal, gift exchange, economy, there's been a lot of work on on this sort of inter-regional system. And Cyprus appears prominently in this. So we know that they were interacting with Egypt and with the Hittites and with other kingdoms and states in the Near East, as well as 
the Aegean and that city-state system. Probably things like the copper ingots that were found on the Uluburun shipwreck, which right. is the yeah. shipwreck off the coast of southern Turkey, mm-hmm. are probably coming from Cyprus. So we know that it's very involved and engaged in those systems, and there's been a lot of work done by people like Bernard Knapp, understanding from the textual sources and the archaeological sources how Cyprus played into that. We know that there are cities and urban contexts on the island in the late Bronze Age, mm-hmm. but there's still a lot of research into what that looked like politically. Like, was it a series of autonomous kings who were kind of competing with one another in the midst of this sort of mercantile, maritime, commercial world where you're opportunistically trading or you're controlling something like the commodity exchange of copper? Or was it more of a hierarchical system where there seems to be some king of Alashi at the top and then you have... You know, more and is that still kind of an open question? It is still very much debated, yeah. and that's particularly because, you know, just the extent of our recovery of some of these urban contexts and sites on the island. Mm-hmm. We don't have archives like, like <laughs> they do in the Hittite world, right? Where right, we could yeah. suss out yeah. some of these more um, political distinctions. So we we really do rely a lot on the archaeology of the urban sites. Yeah. Could you paint a picture of what it's like to be on Cyprus when you're working there? Yeah, that's a great question because I'm actually planning for this summer right now. And because of the pandemic, I actually haven't been in three years. Mm -hmm. Um, So I used to go every summer. When we work, we live in a village, so the Mm -hmm. village of Kalavasos. And we typically, so we live in a village and it takes about 10 minutes to drive to the sites. And the project Mm -hmm. I work on, There are various components of it. So there are some people who are excavating a late Bronze Age urban site. Yeah. Calavasos Ayas Demetrios. And then my project in 2019 began excavations at a small archaic to classical rural site. So a much smaller site in a different part of the valley. Mm -hmm. But we all kind of work together and we collaborate and we live in this village. Yeah, convene like every night and eat meals together. We share equipment um, and we, you know... If one of us needs to get equipment, we'll reach out to the other. So it's a very collaborative project, which is Mm -hmm. great because you get to see the difference in what people are finding, the kind of rhythms of excavation at different sites. The people are really wonderful. And what's Um, the landscape like? Yeah, so it's a semi-arid island, so Mm -hmm. very hot in the summers and typically dry. So the wet, rainy season is in the winter. And we work quite close to the coast. So the village we live in, Calavasos, is about a, I don't know, a 10-minute drive up a river valley. Mm -hmm. But the sites are within 5 to 10 minutes of the coast. You see a lot of arable land, forested land, and then land devoted to things like quarrying. So we happen to be in a part of the island that is known for its limestone and gypsum quarries. Also, historically, in this area, we're close to the upper and lower pillow lavas where the copper is found. And so there was ancient mining and smelting in the area, as well as modern mining and smelting in the area. So it's a, this part of the island is quite industrial, actually. So right now, there is a cement factory that's been there on the coast for a long time. And yeah. there's also a natural gas refining processing plant now. And there has been the history of mining in the region. So there's yeah, a lot yeah. there, particularly with the relationship of like villagers and, and work. So it's and really pr- it's a productive hinterland or um, the copper mining, the limestone, I would assume, olives mm-hmm. and, and yeah. uh, some pastoralism yep. and farming. And 
There's a term in your book that I wanted to ask you about, which is the stock rural background. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, so this comes out of scholarship on particularly the Mediterranean countryside. And Mm -hmm. that's partly generated drawing on the ancient texts themselves, but also through, let's say, the late 19th and 20th centuries. There developed a sense of this kind of timeless Mediterranean agro-pastoralism. The idea being that the people that you see in the 1930s, 1940s, farming or herding are doing the same things that they have been doing for millennia. And when I say stock background, that means that it it almost becomes flat in a way because there there aren't features there that make it unique or distinct. So we stop looking for narrative and change and exactly it takes on these kind of um, ideas or valences that we can draw from a general idea of Mediterranean ruralism. Yeah, yeah, we just stick that in place. Peasantry, and exactly as you're saying, that just means that. You know, we we know what it is, and so we're not as interested in questioning, like, the complexity behind it or yeah, the individual yeah. actors or communities. And in particular, I would think, especially the further back in time you go, and certainly by the, the early Iron Age and the late Bronze Age, the majority of people are still going to be living in the countryside. And like with the case of the Adalian tablet, it does seem like the elites of Cyprus were heavily invested in, mm-hmm. in the sort of the management of uh, and the maintenance of the countryside. That's right. Yeah, so that led me to these questions of how by the 5th century do we have this investment in something like knowledge of plots and ownership and yeah. property regimes yeah. and transactional, you know, histories of landscape management. What was the impact of the Bronze Age collapse on the 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 landscape of Cyprus sort of the the common folk of Cyprus? So it's a great question. It's very tough mm-hmm. to provide a kind of satisfying answer. One of the ways that I tried to think about it was through, you know, landscape interaction. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to get a sense of the experiences of, let's say, non-elites or yeah. common people particularly because we don't have a robust archaeology of domestic spaces or households. Mm-hmm. So many, we, you know, we have a lot of survey evidence, for example, but they haven't been excavated. Many of these you know, surface assemblages of Iron Age artifacts or early Iron Age artifacts. It's tough to get cl- more substantive about what the experiences would have been like, but a major recurring pattern across mm-hmm. the island is of settlement dislocation. So where you had settlements in the late Bronze Age, they do not continue into the first millennium BCE. Some of them, you know, so at some urban sites, we have evidence of reuse and maintenance and new construction. So it's not like people just disappeared. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we certainly, those are really interesting questions, right? Like why at Paphos, at, at Palaipaphos, which was on the southwestern coast of the island, is there now investment in monumental architecture in a period where we're not really seeing settlements in other parts of the island? Yeah, yeah. But it is a recurring pattern, particularly through survey evidence, that that early Iron Age, that sort of transition into the first millennium, is hard to, quote, see archaeologically. So mm-hmm. there have been a lot of debates about this in the field. Is that just our fault? Like, we, we just can't see it because we're not 
we don't have the typologies of the ceramics. They're not good enough for us to like really discern them. Or is it a real pattern? In which case these questions of dislocation, migration. um, And would that real pattern, if it's there, would it signal population decline? It could. Um, Yeah. yeah. There were probably multiple things happening. Yeah. Yeah. So demographic change is certainly a valid sort of assumption. The problem mm-hmm. is we can't yeah. really test it yet because we don't have the data. But that's certainly, you know, an argument that's been made in places like the Aegean where this pattern also occurs, mm-hmm. where from the end of the late Bronze Age into the first millennium, you see a kind of drop in settlement numbers. Yeah, yeah. And this is where environmental change becomes an interesting factor of the conversation because maybe yeah. environments were becoming degraded or for whatever reason, political, social, economic, certain settlements are abandoned and new ones are created. So these are the questions that sort of kind of motivated my initial project. And I love thinking about this initial period of rebuilding, this this aftermath of collapse. It's so much more common to hear people mention the the apogee of a period or the, the dramatic moment it all came crashing down, but the slow process that starts knitting things together again is really fascinating. I guess one more question before I ask specific things is, what is the unruly landscape? (laughs) So that's what I wanted to call my book, actually. Uh (laughs) That was the initial title. This was a term that I had started thinking about in my dissertation. So Mm -hmm. it was something I had kind of latched onto in some other archaeological writing as a way to think about a sort of instability in the landscape partly through environmental changes and people kind of coming to terms with unfamiliar environments, Mm -hmm. partly through new rulemaking. So this period that I was looking at was really interesting because it was the the kind of becoming of the state. So if you think about that, that's a period where rules are being made, norms are being decided, and some are are at the top and others are not. Yeah. And I was really interested in, you know, archaeologically, how do we think about how the how that rulemaking might happen through landscape practices? So through settlement, through industry, through exchange, yeah. through monumentality. So where the elites are putting their tombs as opposed yeah. to others. Yeah. And this horizon of the 8th, 7th centuries had a lot going for it because it yeah. did. It seemed like a very dynamic period, not just in terms of social transformation, but also in terms of landscape and environmental change. In in your work, what has been like sort of the, the source of data for you? Do you have like a handful of sites that you focus on or are you doing a lot of like landscape scale stuff? Or, or Yeah, so I started by reviewing legacy survey data. So mm-hmm. there was a project that had been done, the Vasilikos Valley Project, starting in the late 1970s. And they had collected an, a number of sites, what they were calling sites, from mm-hmm. this period that I was interested in. And so I started there. So yeah. I just like looked at the material, I checked the notes, I went through the publications. And from there, I started to pick out interesting sites that I wanted to look at more closely. Mm-hmm. So I went and sort of walked around, I mapped them. I, first of all, I had to re-identify them because... <laughs> <laughs> I imagine for a lot of these also, like you're not dealing with like a, you know one meter accuracy GPS point that you can return to or something like that. No, and in fact, (laughs) what was difficult was that this earlier project was pre-digital mapping. Yeah. So these were cadastral plot sheets or (laughs) topographical maps. Yeah. 
with the directions of basically like it's in the northern part of plot 29 on sheet yeah. 55. Yeah. And I think people listening who don't work professionally <laughs> as an archaeologist may not realize how much headache can go into trying to understand what somebody wrote smeared kind of with some dust and a little bit of sweat <laughs> halfway through the day while a little bit affected by heat stroke. Right, right. Yeah, that kind of work of having to reconstruct historical excavations, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. It was <laughs> really interesting. And I have to say, that, I mean, this project was great and I, I was able to find mm -hmm. almost all of the sites that I wanted to. But some yeah. of them, it took a couple of days. <laughs> These sites that you were returning to, what do they what do they look like on the surface when you when you actually got to them? So I wanted a diversity of samples. So yeah. like the 10 yeah. or 15 that I initially picked, I wanted some that were in the coastal plain. Mm -hmm. So the coastal plain is not like flat. You have these relic marine terraces. Um, and we often find tombs on them or evidence mm -hmm. of of some kind of presence. I also wanted to sample sites from like the river valleys, so from some of the side drainages or yeah, from yeah. the various kind of ter alluvial terraces of the river valley. And I also wanted to sample sites that were closer to the mines where we know mm -hmm. mining and smelting was happening or that were much higher up because one of the signatures of this period was that people were settling on these upper slopes of the river valley. Huh, okay. So the some of the landscapes were... You know, you walk for half an hour up like an old mining truck road. Yeah. And you're talking about like, you know, 200, 300 meters above sea level, some like terraces or paleo landslides. So mm -hmm. areas where there's now arable cultivation, um, but a lot of forestry. Yeah. And then some of the, like the site that I eventually started working at through excavation is kind of on a plateau bordered on either side by older alluvial mm -hmm. drainage systems. If and a non-archaeologist had, had been there before you started digging, could they have noticed that there was something up? Like, would there have been sherds that they could pick yeah. up? Yeah, so like the, the real signature are ceramics. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Sometimes we find slag, so copper slag. So the, the residue of copper yeah. smelting. Yeah. But you, yeah, mostly you're finding ceramic... Um, assemblages and what you really want obviously are like the concentrations of a lot of ceramics in one place because one of the interesting things about this legacy project was that they were recording a lot of sites that were very small I mean mm -hmm. half a hectare yeah you know yeah. smaller than that um, and when I went back to them it was kind of hard actually to find the concentrations that would suggest that this was like a settlement, for example. Yeah. And yeah. one of the methodological questions that I was really interested in is, are these all settlements? Yeah. And what does settlement rural? mean? Does yeah. that mean like 20 houses? Does it mean like three exactly. in a tiny hamlet? What? Are, yeah. are they just field sites? Like are they sites of processing or tasks related right. to rural use? Right. Yeah. And there's a, a really, really important project, the Roman Peasant Project, mm -hmm. based in central Italy, which has now shown, be through excavation, that what we think we're calling settlements are really production sites. They're things yeah. like, yeah. you know, evidence of mills or evidence yeah. of animal shelters, you know? And so what yeah. I was really interested in was through this sampling, like, can we start to see a diversity of these assemblages? Right, rather than just sort of hand-waving and being like, 
settlement. And it gets very messy when you start looking at them in more granular detail. So from there, I started resurveying a couple that proved to be, to me, more interesting. So one was um, a site that really didn't have earlier or later occupation evidence. So it really Mm -hmm. did seem to be like the 8th through the 4th centuries. And it was in this area with access to alluvial soils, access to gypsum and limestone. So maybe it was, it could be an interesting site. A different site on the coastal plain was very close to a late bronze age site. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was interesting. Maybe they're intentionally siting themselves next to this bronze age site for some reason. So those were the kind of ways that I wanted to explore them more. And then I started excavating in 2017. And of course, you can't do them all at once. Um, (laughs) And so I picked two. um, And even those results were really different. So at the one site, we we found basically modern agricultural features. So through geophysics, what we were finding were things like modern drainage systems. Right, yeah. At the other site, we actually found an archaic classical building. Oh, really? So that is the one that started to generate different new questions yeah, of life yeah. in a small scale network in this period. What did that look like? What was, what, so, what, what do you think that building was? Yeah, <laughs> so I'm hoping to go back this summer because in 2019 we did test trenches and then I haven't been able to go back, but yeah. we came down on a stone built building, um, probably evidence of multiple rooms. We didn't come down on a great securable like floor or occupation context, Mm -hmm. but the assemblages that were coming out of it were suggestive of domestic consumption and production, as well as maybe multiple tasks related to things like processing. So we found, you know, a pounding stone. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But what really drew me to the site was that most of the surface materials were planewares. So pithoi. So like big storage jars, cooking wares, things like plain jugs. Mm-hmm. So I was really interested in maybe this is a kind of storage site for agricultural processing. Yeah, and yeah. that's hopefully where the future seasons will take us is closer, you know, granular information on what are they growing? Maybe are there animals here? Are they exploiting co- gypsum? Yeah. Which yeah. is very scattered throughout this surface of the landscape very close by we know that it was historically exploited in the area so maybe this is also one of the tasks that's happening and are there any patterns in burial practices that inform your research differences between uh, the cities in the countryside or new practices emerging after the bronze age collapse or or anything else is is mortuary archaeology something you're looking at So I personally have not excavated burials, but one Mm -hmm. of the things that I was interested in, because the original survey did find tombs from Mm -hmm. this period, um, was understanding are there patterns of mortuary practices Mm -hmm. that are suggestive of something local, in the sense that maybe there are communities that are using the landscape for something like burial, but also for something like social gathering. And this is drawing on other literature in the ancient Mediterranean that burials, funerary processions, mortuary practices become ways that people come together. Yeah, yeah. Socially and politically, get connected to a place. It's like such a classic trope, I feel like. Someone who lives in a small town 
and they would never leave. And they're like, why would I? My, you know, my dad is buried here mm. and my grandpa is buried mm-hmm. here and I'm going to be buried here. Yeah. It, it's, it seems like one of those classic tropes of how people express that connection to the place that they are. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's a really interesting, you know, historical question. I mean, one of the things that I was interested in was in this period where people appear to be resettling permanently. So they're building villages or households or, or road systems. Yeah. They're also yeah. potentially making claims to space through their cemeteries. And, yeah. And some yeah, of the patterns sure. are that they as I mentioned, are on these higher terraces in the landscape that you can see. The area that I work is about 15, 20 kilometers from the Iron Age city or town called Amethus. Mm -hmm. But recent work has also shown that there were some cemeteries that were kind of placed on the road between them. So the the idea that, yeah, you're kind of staking your claim. Because this is a cross-generational practice. The burials are there. People can visit them. Yeah. But these were some of the things that I was interested in with mortuary practices. Yeah. And I suppose going forward, what are your questions right now? What are you... uh... Yeah. So one of the things that I'm still really interested in are the political, social, economic ties between this region and the town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the kind of prevailing assumption is that Amethus, this kingdom, this city-state on the coast, mm-hmm. controlled the region that I'm working in, that I'm finding these small sites. Yeah. That it was part of their royal territory. My persistent question is, how do we show that? Like, how archaeologically, how do we yeah. show that? Yeah. So what yeah. would it look like if these are dependent subjects of Amethus? And that's, yeah. what we, yeah. that's what I'd really like to understand more. Are they using ceramics that are sort of standardized from the town are they part of some taxation regime where they're providing commodities to the town yeah so these are some of the sort of assumptions that we make about the mediterranean kind of city-state model that you have a town and you have a dependent countryside yeah and so it's you know with the site that i'm excavating and and in the future other sites these were just these would be some of the questions like are local people more autonomous than we assume like are they making a lot of presumably they are making a lot of their own stuff right it's a pithos jar is incredibly heavy you're probably making it close to where yeah you're living or using it or working with it so these are some of the questions that I think more data can help us answer. Are the ceramics local or mm-hmm. are there different exchange systems, for example? Like what resources are they engaging with and can we see changes over time and how are they connected to the political economy of the town? So something like plants and animals, but also gypsum, copper, and th- those would be some of the, the key direction. Is it fair to say there's a lot of work that remains to be done that we don't really have a clear picture of, you know, sort of these processes of growth um, over time in Cyprus? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the period, but I would say that as we kind of started off, there is a bias in archaeology towards excavating towns and yeah, cities yeah. and monumental spaces. And yeah, so the king's burial. And, yeah. We don't have a lot of comparative data yeah. for something like... Yeah household consumption or everyday practices um, and particularly that's particularly true for the iron age and so 
this is just the, the kind of future is getting more interest in surveying and actually excavating those survey sites and not yeah, just yeah. relying on the surface assemblages. You know, it's, it, it really seems like um, an interesting case study for how people can think about, say, like these issues of hierarchy also mm-hmm. around the world. Like talking to Christopher Milan, mm-hmm. he, he's looking at the Manchai of the, the Peruvian coast mm-hmm. in the Lurine Valley and, mm-hmm. and, and sort of grappling, it seems like, with really similar issues of like if you have, say, this monumental center mm-hmm. and then you have these other sites presumably villages and, mm-hmm. and, and smaller settlements dotting the landscape. Yeah, yeah. Are they subservient to the main site? Yeah. Is there something more sort of cooperative going on where it's a little bit more, what would you say, like heterarchical? Or, yeah. Um, no, these it, are, I mean, enduring anthropological questions yeah. of state complexity, social complexity, yeah. power. And, and it, I hope to contribute to some of it, but these will still be persistent, enduring questions because these are really tricky things to get at through the residues and the traces that Mm -hmm. we have archaeologically, and particularly in places where we don't have as many textual sources. Yeah, yeah. um, Where we don't have a good grasp on the mechanics of power to begin with. So, for example, on archaic and classical Cyprus, we know there are kings. Mm -hmm. We know that there are aristocratic elites Mm -hmm. we know that in some places priests or there's some kind of power associated with religious office yeah but we don't have a lot of handle on how power worked i mean was there was this autocratic (laughs) was this more like egypt or was it or like an empire or was it more collaborative or collective so these are even not knowing it would totally change the image of of life in that period if like for instance there was sort of a a local magistrate versus say like a village council and this gets back actually to why the italian tablet is so cool because it mentions or possibly gives the impression that there there we can probably safely say that there are magistrates and Mm -hmm. there are local administrators so in a district, let's say, of Idalian, you have someone who's in control of yeah. like land yeah. management. So we know that there is a government. There's mm-hmm. a form or institution. We know that they're taxing people. We can make claims about mm-hmm. some of these institutions and these formations, but yeah. we don't have a lot of granular grasp on it. And so when you get to these questions of like, how did they manage these people living 20 kilometers away. Yeah. Was it mostly through commodity exchange? Like you owe this amount in foodstuffs to the state or mm-hmm. this amount in labor to the state? Or was it more dynamic and messy and complicated yeah. Yeah. and patchy? And these are some of the things that ultimately, as you say, we need more data. That that need for more data is, to me, part of why the work you're starting is so interesting especially in the period you're studying, looking at traditionally a collapse moment and then something kind of like a rebuilding moment or mm-hmm. reconstituting. It's one thing to just say like the economy collapsed or mm-hmm. the economy grew or it became more complex or something like that. Yeah. But actually, maybe it's another thing entirely. Knowing what's going on beyond the center of a polity, beyond the king's palace, beyond the city walls, maybe even as a collapse is happening, n- new systems are developing. Like maybe... As one economic structure is fading away, other local systems are emerging. Uh, the value, it seems like there's so much value in knowing 
what are all of the unique details of the countryside, the land that make it resilient and that make it start rebuilding? You know, right. Um, and these are really great scalar questions. Mm-hmm. And there, a lot of the work, particularly since the 1980s and 1990s on collapse, mm-hmm. is getting exactly what you're saying. So we need to think more locally or, or multi, in a multi-scalar right. way. Right, yeah, yeah. Like so kind of a nested yes, sort of thing. maybe the centralized institution is disrupted. Right. And we don't have evidence of that. But what were some of these other scalar configurations? And we know from multiple regions now that collapse doesn't take a singular form. It can be very heterogeneous. Again, this idea of persistence, like some places do appear to persist and Mm -hmm. some practices persist. Um, Religious practices actually are one of these really interesting cases for the transition from the second millennium to the first millennium where they seem to be more stable. Hmm. The people seem to invest in practices that cross generations of disruption. So you have the names of deities or you have places that become sacred that kind of transition, make that continuity. Technologies can be persistent. So copper mining and smelting. Yes, iron becomes more ubiquitous, but copper continues. So some Mm -hmm. of these are really interesting questions that get into we need more resolution at different scales. Yeah, yeah. As sort of a a closing question, if if people wanted to read more about about ancient Cyprus, do you have any uh, suggestions for authors or or themes, like say a a, a famous site that they should Google, that kind of thing? Um, Yeah, so Maria Yukovu is probably the leading scholar for Iron Age Cyprus, a really important work. She excavates at the site of Palaipophos, Mm -hmm. where she is doing really cool stuff on urban landscapes, monumentality, and workshops. So they're finding evidence of really cool stuff like they have a room in this part of the urban fabric um, one of these monumental buildings that had a lot of workshops in it and it has evidence of the purple dye manufacture so the the heaps of the shells that were the murex shells that were used in dye manufacture so her work has been really groundbreaking for basically asking these questions of political territory, economy, change over time, transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Bernard Knapp is a really important figure for prehistoric Cyprus. Mm-hmm. Sturt Manning works on particularly radiocarbon dating and um, giving a lot more resolution, as we were just saying, to some of the chronological frameworks and, yeah. and studies of urbanism. And I could probably go on because there's a lot of cool work happening across periods. Yeah. And we should also name your book one more time as well, uh, The Rural Landscapes of Archaic Cyprus, Mm -hmm. um, which was uh, really cool. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for reading. Um, Yeah. Thank you for taking the time for the interview. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Tell. Until next time. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to help me talk to more people in more places, please consider donating. You can do so on my Patreon as a recurring donor, as well as on my website if you'd rather do a one-time donation. The links are patreon.com slash sebastianweatherby and www.sebastianweatherby.com. 
Show notes are also available on my website, where you can find citations and comments and other relevant information about the things we talked about today. Thanks again for listening.